Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate communities shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. You can learn more about our church by visiting cornerstonetulsa.org or by finding us on social media. This year, we're spending January through August working through the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. We gather every Sunday morning at 9.30 and 11 o'clock, and we'd love for you to come and be part of our community. And if we can pray for you or if you have any questions, email us at hello at cornerstonetulsa.org. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Um, we're going to read our teaching text today. It comes from Matthew 5.3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Um, if you guys will bow your heads with me, please. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I just thank you for this new year and this new season of life um, that you have called each and every one of us to, um, to do something extraordinarily new this year, um, to just be refreshed. And I just thank you that we are all here to um, learn and to be with you in this place and um, that we can all just um, soak this message in today. Um, please be with us all. In your son Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. Well, I'm so grateful that you're here. I hope that you're well. Uh, I hope that you're coming in today and you're among friends or, you know, just the week was encouraging for you. Maybe you've come in and uh, just the year is off to a rocky start. That happens. You didn't get the job change that you wanted. You didn't get the raise you wanted. Uh, you, you started school again and you just wish you hadn't. Uh, I don't know what it is for you, uh, but I hope that you're coming in encouraged. Uh, I hope that you come in and you hear among friends, you see your people and you feel safe and loved, or maybe you're here and you haven't been to church in a bit, or nobody knows you, or nobody knows the real you, and your blood pressure is just up being here. Uh, that's totally understandable. I want to commend you for being in this room with these people. I don't know if you're here and you believe the things that we believe, or maybe you vehemently disagree with us, but this morning, I don't think anybody is here by mistake. Uh, this morning, I think it's the Holy Spirit has been at work drawing us in toward Jesus and toward each other. And so I want to say to each and every one of you, no matter where you are in your life, in your beliefs, in your journey, in the name of Jesus, you're welcome and you are wanted in our community. I'm glad that you're here. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I shared a passage of Scripture that's kind of giving us some focus. Uh, it's not kind of giving us, it's giving us focus for 2020. And it comes from Colossians chapter 1. It's a really great uh, couple of verses. Will you read this aloud with me? He is the one we proclaim, teaching and admonishing everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. I love the passage. I hope that you'll commit it to memory over the coming weeks. You'll probably hear it a lot, but it's just so good. And I love this vision of maturity in the church. It's not just like the employed professional Christians who are to be mature. Everyone is invited to be fully mature, fully realized in Christ, which is so great. I like to think of myself as a reasonably mature person. Uh, Emily and I both think that we're guilty of having been born 40. <laughs> and uh, while I joke around a ton, on the inside, everything is like life or death serious. I, I tend to, uh, to take myself way too seriously. Emily and I always benefit from the advice to play, to not take ourselves so seriously, to li lighten up, we, that we do really well to be given that advice. And while I think that I'm a pretty mature person, nothing has revealed my immaturity like these three little creatures that live in our home who are two and six and eight years old. 
and I love them so much, but they also drive me bonkers. And these children of mine have revealed like the major self-control issues, the maturity issues, the anger issues that exist within me. And I think that I'm doing pretty well. Uh, but then on Saturdays where I'm gearing up to preach, I'll blow it in some way, lose my self-control. I'm like in the zone, ready to preach. And then I screw up as a parent and I go into this really predictable shame spiral where like, I'm not good enough to be a parent. I'm much less good to be a pastor. What on earth am I doing? tomorrow, nobody's going to listen to me. And it just, it just serves as a great example of like every one of us has room to grow in the journey toward maturity in life, emotional maturity, vocational maturity, personal like responsibility, but also just maturity in Christ. All of us have room to grow. And so this year, as we're talking about the Sermon on the Mount, and we're looking at like trying to, in a focused way, proclaim Christ, all of us are going to have invitations to take steps uh, toward maturity. Last week, I introduced the sermon, and uh, I hope that many of you read it. Uh, that was your homework for last week, um, to read Matthew 5 through 7. If you didn't, I will allow you to do a makeup. You can read it this week, if you do it early in the week, okay? And uh, the sermon is, is brilliant. We talked last week about how the sermon has this regenerative, renewing capacity, that it could be a gift, especially to the American church that has grown so confused in many ways, that if we were to take the sermon to heart, it could transform us. But the sermon, unfortunately, is largely being ignored by, by folks in the church. And I think there are a handful of reasons. One of those might be just the fact that we're ignorant of the sermon, like, we don't know our Bibles super well, and uh, like, even if you found the sermon, maybe it's like being overwhelmed by everything that's in the Bible, and it's like, where do I begin to try to obey first? And we just kind of like pause out because we're so overwhelmed. Another reason we might uh, ignore the sermon is that we just think it's impossible. So if you read the Sermon on the Mount in this last week or in your lifetime, and you've tried to obey it, uh, you may find that to be a discouraging exercise on your own. Because some of the, the instructions from Jesus are so counterintuitive and so difficult to obey on one's own, we just think it's just impossible. It's just not something that we can do unless you're the Son of God. And the third reason that, that folks might ignore the Sermon on the Mount is they think even if it were doable to try to obey it, it's just not practical in the 21st century. It doesn't work in a pluralistic society. It doesn't work on the scale of government. It doesn't work, you know, with people of all different faith traditions in this, you know, huge globally connected world. It's just plainly impractical. But to these latter points, I'd say the key hermeneutic, the key for unlocking the potential of the sermon for each of us is to remember the one who gave it. Remember the one who gave it. We did not inherit this sermon as like abstract, theoretical, theological principles. We received this sermon as a gift from the Son of God who came in to, to renew uh, humanity, to, to begin a new creation. Remember the one who preached it. One commentator said, the words of the Sermon on the Mount breathe resurrection, Breathe resurrection. They're alive with enabling power. And Jesus didn't preach, didn't give us the Sermon on the Mount without equipping us to obey it, to fulfill it by the Holy Spirit in community. But I think the biggest reason, and probably the ultimate reason why most folks ignore the Sermon on the Mount, is that in our understanding of salvation, we think it's practically unnecessary. So tons of folks have been taught a version of the gospel that goes like this. If you trust in Jesus now, when you die, you will go up instead of going down. 
And the practical implication of that limited telling of the gospel is it's all and exclusively about what happens when you die, not what you do with your life here and now. And if the emphasis is all post-mortem, it makes discipleship unnecessary. It makes how we treat the environment unnecessary. It makes how we treat the people next to us and our enemies and our politics and all of us unnecessary to be evaluated through the lens of the gospel because it's all about what happens after we die. But salvation without discipleship is a false gospel. Salvation without discipleship is a false gospel. Jesus deeply cares about what's going on in the world today just as much as he cares about the renewal that's to come when Christ returns. Uh, discipleship without, uh, salvation without discipleship is a false gospel. Um, I shared, we're, we're in this new tribe called Churches for the Sake of Others, and I have a bishop, and he's awesome. His name's Todd Hunter. And last night, Todd tweeted this. He said, is Jesus your teacher? Notice, I didn't ask, are you going to heaven when you die? I didn't ask, do you believe in his shed blood? No, I'm asking, from whom are you learning to do life? From whom are you deriving a set of values, priorities, practices, directions, aims? Where are those things coming from for us? Following Jesus is not just meant to be a change in our beliefs. You say the right magic word or phrase, and then you get to go to heaven when you die. Uh, like following Jesus is not just a transformation of our beliefs toward orthodoxy. It's also meant to be a transformation in our real lives of our behaviors and our values and our allegiances. This is what we could call orthopraxy, as Todd was talking about. Jesus wants to teach us how to live well, which is good news for a confused and hurting world where all of us are, are, are by default developing some kind of philosophy of life that's governing how we navigate such a complicated and broken world. Jesus wants to teach people how to live well. And in the sermon, we have his magnum opus. We have his manifesto for how people under his rule in his kingdom are to live. And last week, we, we studied uh, verses 1 and 2 of the beginning of the Sermon on the Mountain, and today we're hopping into the sermon proper with what's called the Beatitudes. Uh, the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This comes from Dallas Willard. He said, the Beatitudes are among the literary and religious treasures of the human race along with the Ten Commandments, the 23rd Psalm, the Lord's Prayer, and a very few other passages from the Bible, they're acknowledged by almost everyone to be among the highest expressions of religious insight and moral inspiration. We can savor them, affirm them, meditate upon them, and engrave them on plaques to hang on our walls, but a major question remains, how do we live in response to them? Well, the, the Beatitudes are beautiful, and they can be inspiring. They can also be pretty confusing. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What do you do with that? Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. What's the takeaway that I'm supposed to hold on to in Jesus' mind? Do the Beatitudes tell us how we're supposed to live? Do they give us a picture of the ideal Christian? Here's the ideal Christian. I hope not, because frankly, I don't exactly want to be persecuted. And that's one of the Beatitudes. Is it wrong that I don't want to be persecuted? In reading the Beatitudes, which is like verses 3 through 12 in chapter 5, should we regard them as a moral checklist? Like, if you want to be good with God, take the Beatitudes, and if you're poor in spirit, check, you're good. If you're mourning, check, even though I'm sorry that you're mourning, you got your moral checklist. 
And I think a short answer to all of these questions is simply no. The Beatitudes are not meant to be a list of to-dos. It's not meant to be a new list of resources for, hey, here are some additional ways that you hadn't considered for how you're not measuring up in the sight of God. That's not what the Beatitudes are meant to be. So what are they meant to be? Willard again. The Beatitudes are not teachings on how to be blessed. They are not instructions to do anything. They do not indicate conditions that are especially pleasing to God or good for human beings. No one is actually being told that they are better off for being poor or mourning or being persecuted and so on, or that the conditions listed are recommended ways of well-being before God or man. But instead, the Beatitudes are explanations and illustrations drawn from the immediate setting. We're going to talk about what that means. They are explanations and illustrations drawn from the immediate setting of the present availability of the kingdom of God through relationship to Jesus. They single out cases that provide proof that in him, the rule of God from the heavens truly is available in life circumstances that are beyond hope. The Sermon on the Mount does not begin with a what. Here's what you should go do. Here's what you should obey. The Sermon on the Mount begins with a who, an announcement of who are the beneficiaries of the kingdom of God that Jesus brings, who are the beneficiaries of Jesus' rule in the world. And for those people who had been following him before he preached this sermon, they had already caught a whiff. They had already caught a whiff of who was going to be a beneficiary of his kingdom. Because what did he do immediately before this sermon in Matthew chapter 4? Let's look at it. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Imagine that Jesus came on earth today in bodily form and went to St. John Hospital. And imagine that he did this. He healed every disease and sickness among the people in St. John. People would go berserk if he only took, took care of people on one wing of St. John Hospital. Uh, people would go berserk, and that's precisely what happened in Galilee. News about him spread all over Syria. People brought to him, Syria's a, a distance away. Uh, they brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, the paralyzed, and he healed all of them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. And then we begin chapter 5. It says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside. He sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Immediately following this, Jesus doing his first healing crusade recorded by Matthew uh, he begins the sermon. And there's this quote that's attributed to St. Francis. You've probably heard. He probably didn't say it or he didn't say it like this. But the, the quote was something like this. Preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. It's a great quote. And I love the sentiment. It's a show and tell uh, kind of invitation to Christian evangelism and discipleship that we need to not only tell people about the love of God, we need to show it in the way that we behave. And Jesus takes this kind of show-and-tell approach in Matthew 4 and 5. He begins this sermon, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, and then he heals a bunch of people. 
And when the crowds begin to follow him, he sees the crowds and he explains, he expounds on the sermon that he had originally preached, but he gained credibility by the healings and by the miracles. He did both. He announced the kingdom. He did kingdom stuff. And when the crowds came, he explained himself. Willard said, I believe Jesus used this method of show and tell to make clear the extent to which the kingdom is on hand to us. As Jesus is preaching the sermon, there were directly before him those who had just received from the heavens through him. The context makes this clear. He could point out in the crowd individuals who were blessed because the kingdom among us had just reached out and touched them with Jesus' voice and heart and hands. And perhaps this is why in the Gospels we only find him giving beatitudes. We have a version of this in Luke's Gospel. We only find him giving beatitudes in the midst of a crowd of people he had just touched. And so he said, blessed are the spiritual zeros, the spiritually bankrupt, deprived and deficient, the spiritual beggars, those without a wisp of religion when the kingdom of the heavens comes upon them. I like Willard's translation of the poor in spirit here. The poor in spirit needs a little unpacking for us to get at what was in Jesus' mind. Poor in spirit, as it exists today in our language, we think of it as an admirable state to be in. Somebody is poor in spirit who's really humble or self-effacing, and we think we're meant to be humble and self-effacing. But that's not exactly what Jesus is getting at when he says the poor in spirit. It's not a condition you really want for yourself. Uh, on Thursday, I was on the news on 6 because I was hoping it was going to snow this weekend and looking at things, and I came across this really sad story of uh, near 7th and Memorial. Some of you may have seen this. Some folks were seeing smoke in the middle of the night come out of a manhole cover, and they were concerned. So they call 911, and IMSA and fire go out, and they, get, they open up the manhole cover, and they go down, and they go a decent distance into the, the, the drainage pipes. And someone had set up a little home for themselves down there. And they had pallets and fencing, and they set it up so there was a little contained area where it looks like they had a pet. And they had nailed into the walls of this drainage pipe, nails, and they had hung up like coffee cups and things like that. There was a little mattress down there. And someone was living in this drainage pipe, and they evidently planned on being there long enough that they got a spot for their coffee mug and for their pet. And that poor person's house burned down. They don't know how it happened. And they didn't find the person. But deep under the city of Tulsa near North Memorial, somebody lost that sad little house. That was a sad day for that man or that woman or that family, that pet. That's a really sad day. That's the poor in spirit. There's a story uh, on Facebook. A friend of mine the other day posted a story of this kid who had run away. And you know how when there are Amber Alerts, folks share them all over the place. And there's a picture of this 10 or 11-year-old little boy, and um, he had run away from home. And he left a little note that they posted on Facebook and just says, Bye, tell Daddy I love him. That poor little boy had a really bad day. Uh, that, that mom and that dad... Man, they had a really bad day. Support in spirit. Officer Weekly could tell us stories about things that he's seen uh, serving our city and protecting our city. Those of us, you know, folks who work in mental health or in healthcare in general, emergency rooms, social workers, teachers, 
who see how lots of families are living in our city. And if we passed the mic and told the stories, folks who work for DHS who go into the homes, homes that are just terrible conditions and there are children living there, we could pass the mic and tell these stories and it would, it would lead us to our knees. Just so sad. And if I had, if you had x-ray vision and we could look into each other's hearts and we see the ways that some of us, like the thought patterns that we have, the ways that we see ourselves, it's just so destructive. And so we're so deceived and we harm ourselves. It's really, really sad. That's what Jesus is getting at when he says the poor in spirit. It's not just the humble It's not just the self-effacing. It's the folks who are keeping it together with duct tape or maybe even the duct tape has fallen to shreds. Jesus says, blessed are you who are barely holding it together, who are on the verge of collapse, who have blown it and know it because the kingdom of God is uniquely available to you. God spoke through Isaiah and Isaiah 57 said, this is what the high and exalted one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy, I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who's contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. There's something so Jesus-ish about bringing good news to the poor in spirit. There's something that is so the kingdom of God when people who are just barely holding it together who have hit rock bottom and come face to face with their own internal reality and the consequences of living that on the world uh, have a chance to rebuild. Some of you may have heard of Women in Recovery, this amazing, amazing program in uh, the state of Oklahoma, uh, partnered with Family and Children's Services. Oklahoma has one of the highest rates of incarceration of women in the country, incarceration in general, but a really alarmingly high rate of incarceration of women. And I went to one of the graduations for Women in Recovery. It's it's, it's women, many of whom have, have had meaningful addictions, their children have been taken from them, they are not gainfully employed, and their life has just fallen to pieces. And rather than being sent to a correct facility, they're sent into this program where they're partnered with all kinds of counseling and community and resources and job training, and the kingdom of God is at hand at a women in recovery graduation. Couldn't help but just weep hearing the stories of these women getting custody of their children back, getting, getting gainfully employed, having a resume, and you can see the joy of the kingdom as these women are taking first steps. God abides with the lowly. Uh, Say what you will about Kanye West. He's doing something right with his Sunday services and the audiences that he's taking it to. He did uh, one of his Sunday services in a correctional facility in Texas, one for men and one for women. And I am totally sure that there's some publicity involved in this. But don't let the Pharisee in you or in me miss what's happening. There were people having a spiritual experience hearing the news that Jesus is the king. I heard it from a rapper Paul said, whether a person preaches Christ out of goodwill or selfless ambition, I don't care because the message is getting out. He's going to folks in their broken state. I believe that God is near to the lowly. God is near to the prisoner. Jesus looks on this crowd of those people that he had healed, the people who used to be possessed, who used to be paralyzed, who used to be sick, and he said, blessed are you who are poor in spirit. Heaven's available to you. This comes from Dale Bruner. He said, the word for poor here means the abject poor, the abysmally impoverished, 
those completely dependent on others to make it. Probably in our country, some of the much maligned welfare poor. The gospel poor are mainly society's marginated people, the city's underclass, the worldwide wretched of the earth. When Matthew's Jesus explicated this wretchedness as also being poor in spirit, he wishes to say that those who have reached bottom spiritually, emotionally, and psychically too, who cannot live without God's supernatural help. Maybe some of you feel that way this morning. You cannot live without supernatural help and miraculous intervention. For all such desperate persons, for all those whom the world calls failures, God is especially there. The Sermon on the Mount begins with an announcement of the grace of God available through Jesus. And before he utters a single word about how you should live, how you should reform yourself, uh, Jesus gives this, this message of grace. He demonstrates and reinforces the enabling love of God for people who are at rock bottom. And by extending this folks to folks who are in the most extreme of circumstances, he demonstrates that none of us are beyond the reach of God's blessing. Rich Mullins had this old song, Nothing is beyond you. You stand beyond the reach of our vain imaginations, our misguided piety. The heavens stretch to hold you and deep cries out to deep, saying nothing is beyond you. Nothing is beyond the reach of the love of God. And we see it in Jesus, his first proper sermon. Blessed are you who are barely keeping it together. Heaven is uniquely available to you. As I've shared, there's, there's some work to be done in unpacking what it means to be poor in spirit. But similarly, there's some work we need to uh, do to understand what it means to be blessed. Blessed in the city of Tulsa for many people means getting an escalate from God. Blessed means like, like a ridiculously high return on your income taxes or like someone just walking up to you and handing you $1,000. Uh, we need to make a shift and to get at the biblical understanding of blessed. And sometimes our various translations of the Bible make this difficult for us. Because some of you have versions of the Bible that may have said, fortunate are those who are poor in spirit. Lucky are those. Happy are those who are poor in spirit. One version I saw this week said, flourishing are those who are poor in spirit. Those women who were beginning the Women in Recovery program probably did not feel lucky, happy, or like they were flourishing in life. What has gone wrong? What do we need to unpack? Jesus is not saying, good for you if you're in a deplorable situation. And with his words, in extending these words of blessing, Jesus is doing something. He's extending a blessing. He's, he's not just saying something, he's acting. Uh, and there's this one scholar who has a very unfortunate last name, which is Boring. <laughs> And Boring talks about the performative power of some words, the performative power of some words, including biblical blessings. And he, he demonstrates the performative power of some words with three situations that we would be familiar with. One of those would be in a baseball game, an umpire who calls a ball or a strike. Whatever the umpire says is reality. It may have been a perfect pitch, but if you called it a ball, it's going down as a ball. It can end a season. It can end a game can really anger some people. We have disagreements about what's a ball and what's a strike. But those words have performative power. Talks about a pastor uh, officiating a wedding. Uh, you've declared your vows and consents before God and one another. You've exchanged rings. Therefore, I announce that you are husband and wife in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Something happens when those words are spoken. 
There's a reality with a signature on a marriage certificate. There's a performative power to those words. I think similarly about a judge who would pronounce a person guilty or innocent. The world is going to reflect the words of that judge. Those words have performative power. In all cases, the words enact a reality. They actually do something. And so when Jesus declares a person blessed, it's action, not just evaluation. It's it's less like you're lucky and more like blessings on you who are in this situation. God extending through Jesus the blessings of the kingdom of heaven. There's a performative power. The words do something. Jesus is extending the blessing and the favor and the enabling power of God to people who find themselves in these unfortunate situations. Uh, you You could take a biblical example to get your head around it. Do you remember in Genesis how Isaac, uh, the son of Abraham, was getting old? He had two sons, Jacob and Esau. And Jacob, the the secondborn, tricked his dad into giving the birthright blessing to him and not to Esau, who was the firstborn. Now note, after they realized what had happened, Isaac didn't just eat the words. Oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean it. We're going to make that moot and invalid with Jacob. I'm taking them back and now I'm giving them to Esau. There was a performative power to the words, and they now lived in light of Jacob's deception. Jacob received the blessing of the firstborn. Their words had performative power. You could think about the priestly blessing that I share almost every week at the end of service. It comes from the book of Numbers, where the priest would come out from the presence of God and lift up his hands, say, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And the people didn't think it was just lovely words, well wishes on them. They opened their hands to receive it as the priest put the name of God on them. And they believed it to have performative power. It did something when the priest extended the blessing in putting God's name on them. But you already know all of this, the performative power of words, because you can think about your life and narrate your life, tell the story of your life based on the words that were or were not spoken to you, for good and for evil. You remember the day you chose that career because that person that you looked up to said, I think you have it in you. You got some gifting there. Or you can think about how like the the years that your life went off course when someone who is significant in your life withheld those words of blessing or they maligned you. Words have a performative power, and especially coming from the lips of Jesus, there's a performative power to these divine blessings. Worlds are built when Jesus blesses them. Dale Bruner said, some words, and the biblical blessings are such, some words are powerful deeds. I think something actually happens to listening people when Jesus' beatitudes are passed on to them. They have performative power. Something actually happens to listening people. And who are the people who are most going to benefit from these kinds of blessings? It's the people who are most keenly aware of their need of them. The people who are the most destitute. The people who are most like dry ground crying out for water. You ever almost kill a houseplant? and then you watered it for a couple of days, you see a transformation. Who are the people that are going to benefit the most from a blessing like this? It's the people who know most keenly their need of it. 
The, the primary purpose of the Beatitudes in this case, especially blessed are the poor in spirit, is not instructions for, for all of us on, on how to be moral or how to be good. It's an announcement of the favor of God on broken people. It begins with a message of good news, just like the Ten Commandments began with a message of grace. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery in Egypt. Therefore, you'll have no other gods before me, but I'm the one who rescued you before you agreed to start serving me. It's an extension of grace. Blessings on all of you who are poor in spirit, who are falling to pieces, who can't make it without divine intervention because the kingdom of the heavens is now uniquely available to you. And so for our friends in this room who, who just like, don't feel like you're keeping it together, you don't know how you're going to make it today. You don't know how you're going to make it through this crappy season of life. Blessings on you. The kingdom of the heavens is uniquely available to you. In the middle of what you're going through, the kingdom of the heavens is uniquely available to you. We need to tell that to each other. God lives in high and exalted places, but also with the lowly. And so blessings on you who are there, who are barely holding it together. Who in your world needs to hear that? Think of a coworker. And they've been through the ringer. And they just need to, they need to hear, hey, God's got your number. He will take your call any day. I want you to know I think he loves you. I think he's grieving with you in the middle of this. I just want you to know I'm praying for you. Who in your world needs to hear this? Now, while I think the Beatitudes are not chiefly instructional for here's, how, here's what you need to do, you followers of Jesus, they're primarily an announcement for those of us who are following him, I think there's, there's a, a logical point of application or, or maybe some logical invitations as we consider the blessing of God to those who are poor in spirit. And I think the first is to get in touch with our own poverty of spirit. To get in touch with our own poverty of spirit and to see ourselves as we are. Anytime I mention a movie, I am not recommending it, okay? So you heard about this from someone else. But one of my favorite movies of all time is Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, with featuring Bill Murray, who's one of my favorite human beings. And uh, I think I'm very much like Bill Murray in lots of ways. We could talk about that later. If you agree, tell me and I'll feel great about myself. But Bill Murray is this documentary filmmaker in uh, Life Aquatic, and he's very full of himself. He's, he's got these delusions of grandeur. And very toward the end of the movie, he falls down a flight of stairs. He realizes the failure that he is, and he accepts it. And it's a moment of beauty. It's a moment of beauty when he begins to live in the truth about who he really is. And we need to get in touch with our own poverty of spirit. Uh, I think one of the most healing and transformative things that Christians can do is confess their sins to each other in all candor. Habitually confess their sins to each other. Uh, every uh, Tuesday afternoon, I FaceTime with two other pastors. One's in Texas, one's in Missouri. And uh, one of the primary purposes of our call is just to confess our sins to each other. And I know things about those guys that they wouldn't want broadcast. And they know things about me and habits of thought that I have that I don't want broadcast. But it's James 5.16. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other. For what purpose? So that you may be healed. You're healed by admitting that you're unwell. You find life by admitting like the parts of you that are dying and, and decaying. We need to get in touch with our own poverty of spirit. I think this also happens. It's funny that my mind went here. But thinking about things like praying in secret, giving in secret, serving in secret, fasting in secret, 
And I thought about these, and then I realized, oh, that's exactly where Jesus goes in the Sermon on the Mount. He thought this thing through. But there's something about fasting where you realize your utter dependence on, on things like caffeine. You, you realize how, like, your life is just being propped up by little, little things that you think you need. Jesus says, man doesn't live on just bread alone. We need to eat. We need to drink water. I need coffee. But those are not the only things that make for a life. When we fast, when we neglect ourselves the things that we need, uh, we get in touch with our deepest of needs. When we, uh, when we give in secret, when we serve in secret and not broadcast it, we starve ourselves of our need for approval from other people. Jesus says when your Father, Heavenly Father who sees what's done in secret, he's going to reward you for that when you've deprived yourself of the need for the approval of other people. But when we do that, and we, we want to tweet it, we want to put it on Instagram, we want someone to give us credit for it, we realize just how impoverished we are internally. One of the, a really great prayer to just meditatively pray, especially for those of us who struggle with arrogance or, or pride or have to get the last word or think so highly of ourselves, is just the Jesus prayer. Uh, this comes from a, a blind beggar in Jericho. It's elsewhere. It's the tax collector in the temple. Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus saw the tax collector beating his breast and confessing his need of divine assistance. I am a sinner. Have mercy on me. It gets us in touch with our spiritual poverty. But I think the other logical place of invitation for the people of God, disciples hearing this beatitude, is simply to ask, where are the hopeless and the burnt, the burnt out and the rundown and the poor in spirit people in my life, in my world, in my city? And how can I extend the blessings of God to them in the name of Jesus? Where are those people who are falling apart? They need somebody to extend the blessings of Jesus to them. I could ask it a different way. If God dwells not only in heaven but also with the lowly, wouldn't it behoove us to dwell with them too? To build overlap with, with the lives of people who are deeply in touch with their impoverishment of spirit. Those who are needy. I don't know what God's going to do with it, but I keep thinking about people in Tulsa with HIV and AIDS. For as terrible a job as the church has done historically with showing the love of Jesus to LGBTQ people, man, where are the folks who have HIV and AIDS that we can show the love of God to? I think about when I went to Metro, there's, there's an um, assisted living facility just like within a square mile of Metro, and uh, the last time I went there, it made me really, really sad. Just think about the lonely old. Think about those who are aging and uh, losing their faculties, losing dignity, their distances from family members. There's so many cases of those kind of people being taken advantage of. I think of the homeless. I think of the immigrant. I think of the orphan. I think about the hundreds and hundreds of kids in Oklahoma in foster care. I think about the hundreds and the thousands of prisoners who are incarcerated in our state. And one of, my, one of the challenges for me in preaching this, and honestly it intimidates me going into the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, is I'm not sharing these things as if I'm the guy who's spending all of my time like checking in and spending time with prisoners. I'm not sharing that I can't say with confidence in this area, follow me as I follow Christ. I'm part of us, part of the church like recognizing an opportunity for growth, recognizing an opportunity to join Jesus and extending the blessings to God on those who are, who are in touch with their own poverty. 
And it both scares me and excites me for what may happen this year as individuals and as a church as we take steps to, to put uh, the Sermon on the Mount central to our life together, to really ask God how we're to steward our time and our resources and our energy and our network and our vocational expertise, how we're to steward those to bring the blessing of God to people who are poor in spirit, those who are at their wit's end. But I'm also aware that the poor in spirit is not just like an out there reality, as if the people in this room are like perfectly put together and we're the messiahs who are out to go and rescue the world because we have no need of ourselves. That We all struggle. We struggle to make sense of our bodies in a world that values people being pretty and skinny. We, we struggle with like, like how to influence our world in a world that values people being powerful. We struggle to have meaning and relationships in a world that values popularity and we wonder where we measure up and how we measure up to other people. As I've said, if we just passed the mic and we could see deeply into each other's hearts, we would know just how vulnerable and fragile the people to our left and right really are. That if we could see through the eyes of God just how impoverished many of us are uh, who are desperate to hear the blessing of Jesus just to tell us we're okay and he knows, notices us and he loves us. And the church is meant to be this community that before we lead, we don't lead off with an announcement of how you should reform your behavior. We lead off with the good news that Jesus has an eye for those who are poor in spirit and he wants to extend his blessings on them with a kind of performative power. He wants to bless them. He loves them. He made them. And flowing out of our own identity of one who is blessed, we share the blessing of God with other people, deliberately going after them like the shepherd who has left the 99 to go after the one because it's just what the people of God do. Jesus said, blessings on you who are poor in spirit, you who are lowly, you who are desperate for divine intervention because the kingdom of the heavens is uniquely available to you. Maybe you're here today and that is you and you think, I don't know how I'm going to make it apart from divine assistance. Can't pray for yourself. He's praying for you. We're praying for you. And you may not know your name, you may not know the intimacy, like the, the details of your story, your church is praying for you. Maybe you're here and you, like, you know how phenomenally blessed you are. You feel relatively secure in your identity in Christ and as a human being. Or maybe you just know how grateful you are for what God has done in your life. There are people all around you in this room. You'll see them at the corner of I-44. You'll see them when you go to your cubicle tomorrow, when you drop your kids off at Mother's Day Out, when you go back into the classroom. There are people all around you who are so desperate to hear words of life and blessing. And in the middle of crisis and difficulty, need to hear someone say, I can't imagine what it's like going through this. I just want you to know I think God loves you and he notices you. And uh, I think he'll take your call anytime you, anytime you ask. And we, need, we have the opportunity to share that with folks. So let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for those words of blessing that our Heavenly Father speaks over us in our baptism that confirms our core identity. Blessings on you. You are my son. You are my daughter that I love, and I'm pleased with you. 
for those in this room, I'm genuinely not going to embarrass you, but you just, you are discouraged. You need to hear words of blessing from your heavenly Father, or you're in a desperate situation, and you just need help. I don't know, you can raise your hand, you can look at me. I'm just going to speak the words of blessing over you from Jesus. If that's you, maybe you can't bring yourself to do either one of those. Blessings on you who are just trying to make it. God loves you. Holy Spirit, move in power in the lives of those who just feel so desperate today, who feel scared and tired and insecure uncertain about themselves, they hate their bodies. For those who feel poor in spirit, Jesus, extend your blessings to them. Don't let your words return void. May they sense the nearness of the kingdom of heaven, even, as, even right now. And so if you feel just your heart stirring, that's you, just take it as God loves you. He sees you. And for all of us, Lord Jesus, I pray that, you would, that you'd help us to share generously what you've generously given us. We need you. We need you to help us to live into this beatitudinal calling to extend the blessing of God to those who are poor in spirit. I pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.